for them. So why don't you guys open your Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Mark right now. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be taking a look at the story of the life of Jesus today. And uh, in some ways, the uh, life of Jesus that we'll be seeing put on display today uh, seems to be in some ways a little bit out of character than the typical Jesus that we hear about or the typical Jesus that we think about. Most often when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as being really nice. Like he's a really nice Really nice guy. Nice guy to the point where little kids climb up on his lap and he hangs out. He's always smiling. Um, but today what we're going to see in terms of the picture of Jesus is something that would maybe more or less look a little bit out of character for Jesus. And so hopefully the story that we'll see about Jesus will actually make sense and we'll see why Jesus does what he does. And what specifically we're talking about is Jesus actually cursing a fig tree and Jesus, what's typically known as Jesus cleansing the temple or in other words, making a whip and driving people out and throwing over tables, going ballistic in the place of worship. So uh, that's what we'll look at. Hopefully it will make some sense to you, and hopefully uh, uh, God will speak to us this morning. So I'm going to read the passage here, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work on what we'll be taking a look at. We'll be starting in about verse 12, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, and uh, we'll read down to about verse 21. It says this in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And he came to it, and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they then came to Jerusalem, and he entered in the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And they overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats and those who sold pigeons." And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, they went out of the city. In verse 20, 20 and 21, it says, And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree had withered away to its roots. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. God, we ask you that you would help us understand what this passage even means. God, we confess in a lot of ways um, the picture that we typically have of Jesus uh, doesn't oftentimes make room for this picture of Jesus. And yet, God, we confess to you, we don't want to make our own Jesus. The Jesus that we make will fail us. God, that's why we need to humble ourselves to you. We need to allow your word to inform us rather than us inform your word or rather than us try to force your word to fit our lives. We pray, God, that you would help us to transform, be transformed by what you have to say, be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit at work. In this place, in this time, open our eyes, reveal idols, idolatrous ways, reveal areas, God, in our lives that we need to repent from and turn to you. So give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear what you have to speak to us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take a look at basically three things today. And I'm going to basically jump right into the passage because there's a lot for us to cover. I'm going to basically look at two things first and foremost. One, we'll take a look at the cursed tree. And that's the story that we just read. The second thing, we'll take a look at a judged temple. Jesus goes on and judges or cleanses the temple. 
And the third thing basically is in form of a question. And it's really a question in which we're trying to understand what do the actions of Jesus and the sayings of Jesus have to do? I mean, why, what is Jesus cursing a tree or Jesus cleansing or judging the temple have anything to do with his redemptive work of going to Jerusalem. So hopefully all of these things will then begin to make sense in a second here. But first of all, we've got to take a look at them bit by bit. We've got to give ourselves a little bit of delayed gratification before we jump to the end. We've got to kind of work through the text the way that Mark intends for us to work through it, which means we need to take a look at the stories and really ask and understand why the stories are there, why the actions are there, why did Jesus do the things that Jesus did, and Mark wants us to make sure that we understand those things. So the first thing we'll take a look at is a cursed tree. So Jesus, just to kind of give you a little bit of a, a, a geographical region as to where Jesus was, he was in the region of the city of Jerusalem. I'll give you guys a map of what this looks like in just a second here. But Jesus was in, was in this region of Jerusalem. And somewhere between the city of Bethany, which was probably where Jesus stayed, in the city of Bethany, Jesus had some good friends that lived there. The names were Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And it was likely that Jesus actually stayed with them. It's kind of like this little bed and breakfast when Jesus was on the road, when he was doing ministry in Jerusalem, he'd spend the night at those guys' house. Now, remember Lazarus was the guy that was raised from the dead. He had a lot to be thankful for. Um, so the reality is, is that's where Jesus probably stayed. And so Jesus was on his way back into the city of Jerusalem. And as he was in the city of Jerusalem, now imagine, he's got disciples that are following him all around. Jesus sees a tree, walks up to the tree, and he's expecting to eat off of the tree. He's hungry. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, there's nothing on the tree. He's like, curse you, tree. And the disciples are like, that's out of character. Like, it's weird. Jesus normally doesn't, A, speak to trees. B, speak nasty, in a nasty way to trees. What's wrong with Jesus? But Jesus is living out something. He's enacting something. And the way that Mark tells the story gives us this clue. Now, Mark uses uh, literary devices throughout his writing that helps us to understand what he's writing and why and how significant what he's writing about. With that, what I mean by that is, so we take a look at the issue of the cursed tree. We see that in verses 12 to 14. But then the story, as we concluded this morning, in verses 20 to 21, also picks up with the tree. So in other words, uh, it's kind of a literary device that oftentimes scholars describe as an intercalation or sandwiching. In other words, there is a story of a tree on the one end, and then there's a story of a tree on the other end, and in between, what is sandwiched in between is meant to sort of uh, be the essence of what the tree speaks about. So in other words, let me try to put it this way. The element of the tree, Jesus cursing the tree on either end, his bookends, points to what Jesus is about to do where? On the temple. That's the way Mark's telling us the story. He wants us to see that what Jesus is doing by cursing the tree is sort of a precursor, no pun intended, as to what's about to happen on the temple. Jesus is letting his disciples know what's about to take place. He's about to bring about some form of a judgment or some form of cleansing or purging on the temple mount. So with that being said, what Jesus wants for us to understand is that all throughout Israel's history, Israel has been identified by lots of different types of idioms or metaphors or pictures. You can think of a handful of them, but probably one of the most predominant one or two types of metaphors that Israel has been identified as is A, the fig tree, but also B, a vine. A vine. So take a look at the next slide. We'll take a look at sort of some of the verses that we see. Jeremiah 8, 13, Hosea 9, 10, verse 16, Joel 1, 7. All of these are verses that basically describe Israel in a metaphorical form as being like a fig tree. 
And when you think about a, uh, a fruit tree or a garden, the whole purpose, the sole purpose of a garden is not therapy. It's to eat. It's the whole point of a garden. Like, the reason why you plant a garden is not to just somehow help yourself mentally adjust to life's difficulties, but it's to actually enjoy the fruit that comes out of it. This past year, this summer, I decided to plant a garden. So I spent a lot of time, I built this kind of upright planting area, and I got good soil. First I got bad soil, and then I had to replant it, but that's a whole other story. I got good soil, I planted a bunch of stuff in it, and I... For the first three weeks, went out there, I watered every day, I was excited about it. It was sort of, in some ways, it was therapeutic for me. I'm like, this is fun, I love doing this, this is nice, it's beautiful in the morning, I get to water my plant, and every day I'm watching these things grow little bit by little bit. Now, I don't know, a good two months into it, I'm, I'm a little bit, to be quite frank, very disappointed with my garden, all right? Um, it could be user error, but the reality is, it's just not doing what I expected it to do got some peppers, handful of tomatoes, some zucchinis, and that's about it, all right? Maybe some beans, and that's about it. Nothing to, like, to bring sustenance to my family. Like, I can't walk in with, like, five zucchinis under my arm. Check out what I got. We don't got to go to the store this week. That's what I was hoping. Maybe it was unrealistic expectations, but the point of the matter is my garden has done nothing but be a letdown for me. It's brought disappointment to me. I expected to be fed off of my garden um, not only is it a letdown, but I got stuck with a massive water bill. It stunk, all right? The bottom line is this. What I planted that was intended to bring great blessing to me and blessing to my family, and maybe even I had this crazy idea that might even bless neighbors. Like, saw myself, like, bringing zucchinis to neighbors and being like, here you go. Like, how did the abundance of my garden be blessed? Like, none of that. None of that. I was frustrated. The sole purpose of a tree is to bear fruit, to eat. That's the sole point of it. Now, suppose a plant or a tree doesn't bear fruit. It's worthless. It's worthless. It's not doing what it was intended to do. It's not being what it was intended to be. Jesus, seeing this fig tree, realizing the fig tree is symbolic of Israel, goes to the fig tree, hungry, looking for fruit, finds no fruit, then curses the fig tree. This is a parable, a living parable that Jesus is about to say that is about to befall the people of Israel. God created Israel to be a vine, to be a tree, to bring fruit to the nations, to bless other people, that out of the abundance of their life, out of the abundance of their fruitfulness, the world would be blessed, the world would feast, the world would see God, the world would be satisfied at the blessing of the nation of Israel. But Israel has come up with nothing but leaves. Now, we'll get to this in just a second here because it's easy for people at this particular juncture to kind of be like, yeah, Israel's all messed up. But the reality is, is that Israel also represents all of us, the rest of the world. Because Paul actually says in Romans chapter 1, it's not just Israel that failed, it's the whole world that's also failed. But we'll get to that in a second here. So first of all, we see that Jesus curses this tree and then later on in verse 21, we see that this tree also then withers. The second thing that I want you to take a look at is a judged temple. In verses uh, 15 to 19, what we then begin to see is that Jesus goes up to the temple. And I'm going to spend a little time just kind of unpacking this and looking at this. So Jesus goes up into the temple mount. This probably would have been a few days prior to the celebration of what's called Passover. Israel had all sorts of holidays, just like we have holidays. Passover kind of would have been like Christmas 
for the Jews. It was a very lively holiday. There was a lot of activity going on, a lot of hustle and bustle, a lot of, uh, the, like the city of Jerusalem on a, on a typical day would have been maybe 30,000, 40,000 people. During the time of uh, the, the Feast of Passover, we're talking maybe upwards of 3 million people swarming into the city of Jerusalem. So imagine Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem uh, and it's absolutely packed wall-to-wall with people all over the place. It's absolute pandemonium everywhere you look. This is what Jesus comes into. He comes immediately up to the temple. Now, you need to think about it this way. The temple basically symbolized everything about Judaism. Um, If you were to think about throughout history, there have been buildings, and buildings are not just, I mean, some buildings are just buildings, but there's some buildings that actually sort of take upon the shape of the actual culture around them. Does that make sense? Like when you think of Dubai, I'm not even sure what the name of that building is, but what's that big, weird, sail-look building? Does anybody know what that's called? Any architect people? George Garcia, what is it called? You've got to know what it is. I'm calling you on you right now. What's it called? Okay. Yeah. Burj? Okay. Burj. It's a big building. And when I think of Dubai, I think of this big, ginormous building. But the reality is, for example, this is exactly one of the reasons why terrorists several years ago, targeted two buildings in America because they depicted commercialism in America. They depicted a sense of capitalism, the very thing that they were fighting against. So they took down two buildings that symbolized America and Americanism. The reality is, for the Jews, the temple symbolized all that Israel was. So what you need to think about is when Jesus goes into the region of, uh, into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple, onto the temple, and starts doing what Jesus does in the temple, driving people out, overturning tables, causing all sorts of chaos, Jesus is actually doing these actions on the very building that marks uh, Jewish pride, Jewish nationalism. Does that make sense? It's very important to understand this. So we need to go back a little bit further to try to understand kind of a biblical perspective of what the temple was all about. Because even though the temple came to be understood as sort of a symbol of Israel, the temple was ultimately intended to symbolize something even greater than just simply one nation. You have to go back all the way into the garden. When God originally created Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve not as spirits, but as human beings with a body. God created Adam and Eve on a planet, planet Earth. And on planet Earth, there was a special place that God placed Adam and Eve. It's called Eden. It was a paradise. It was beautiful. It was literally everything that really our hearts long for, dream for, desire. It was a place of shalom, peace. It was, the reason why it was a place of shalom and peace was because it was the place where God and man intersected, where heaven and earth collided and overlapped. It was the place where God and human beings walked with each other, fellowship with each other, loved one another. It was a place where Adam and Eve loved God and God loved on them. And God's desire from the very beginning was that Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply. The purpose behind that was that as Adam and Eve would be fruitful and multiply, the entire earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In other words, that the whole earth was to be like a temple, like a place of fellowship with the living God that God would fellowship with human beings. Unfortunately, that's not the way the story went. Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve turned against God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God 
by basically, in short, becoming like God or thinking that by becoming autonomous beings or turning away from God, they would actually have life. It's the same lie that many of us believe in the sense where we think that the more independent we are, the more freedom we have. That's not true. If that's the theme by which you live your life, if that's the story by which you live your life, you will actually discover that being independent does not buy freedom. It actually brings new forms of slavery. That's what it always does. God designed Adam and Eve and us so that we would become dependent upon him. That in being dependent upon God, in turning to God, in loving God, in being in relationship with God, we would actually have life. We would have joy. We would have peace. We would have comfort. All of those things that every one of you are looking for today, searching for. Some of us, searching for it in God, and you're finding it. Some of us are not searching for it in God. We're searching for it in our job, in our career, in the money that we have, in the exploits that we're able to do, investments we're able to find ourselves getting involved in, in relationships, in boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, in the hopes of one day having a children, in hopes of having one day your children gone. We're looking somehow for some way to find freedom in all sorts of different ways. And we don't have it. We don't have it because we bought into the lie that independence means or equals freedom. That's not how God designed us. God designed Adam and Eve so that in being dependent upon God, they would have relationship with God and their life would be full of this peace. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, God banished them or exiled them from the garden and God placed what the Bible tells us is a flaming sword over the entrance of the garden. That people were not allowed to go back into the garden except for passing under the sword. Meaning, no one can go in there unless you pay for it by your life. You can't just go walking back into this relationship with God without somehow a price being paid. And the price is the most sacred of prices, which is your own life. Death needs to happen first. And so what basically God said from that is he demonstrated that there was a banishment from his presence. But because God's a good God, because God loves his, crea his creation, his creatures, human beings, because they're made in his image, God has sought to bring about redemption and reconciliation throughout the story of Israel's history. God established the people of Israel, called them, and says, I want you guys to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle basically was a big tent. In the middle of the tent was a place, a bigger tent that was called the Holy of Holies. In the center of this Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and that symbolized God's presence. And no one was allowed to go into that Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year on the day of what's called Yom Kippur. Later on, that tabernacle is replaced by what's called the temple. Um, and the temple was actually built originally by a guy by the name of Solomon. Some of you are familiar with Solomon. Give me you guys a little bit of a history here. Some of you woke up this morning saying, I sure hope pastor has history. You're welcome. That's what we're doing right now. We are looking at the history of Israel. So uh, once the children of Israel actually built the temple, in the temple, it was basically more or less um, an exact replica of the tabernacle, but it was permanent. It was not something to be taken down like a tent. In this temple, in the center of this temple, was what's described as the glory of God or the presence of God, the weightiness of God, oftentimes depicted by a cloud. Uh, rabbis would describe that as the Shekinah, the glory of God, something of substance, something of weight. God resided in this temple, in this tabernacle. And the only person that can go into that tabernacle, into that temple, would have been the high priest, 
once a year, and only after all sorts of sacrifices would be made. But the point of the matter is, is that when this original temple was built and designed and completed by Solomon, Solomon basically gathered together all of Israel and had a huge party. And they celebrated that finally there has been a place that is now established on the earth for heaven and earth to collide, heaven and earth to overlap, for God and man to once again fellowship with each other in a permanent location on the temple of uh, Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. I'm going to read you the passage that Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. And here's what he says. Um, he describes it like this. Now, there's a lot of things I would encourage you probably at some other point to read the entire chapter. It's really an amazing prayer, but I'm just going to read to you for the sake of what we're looking at here today. This particular passage that Solomon actually prays specifically for non-Jews. And basically, as Solomon prays for non-Jews, he prays that non-Jews would actually use the temple as a means of meeting with God. Here's what he says. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and of your mighty hand, of your outstretched arm, and when he comes and he prays towards this house, you will hear in heaven your dwelling place, and you will do according to all that which, your foreign, uh, which the foreigner calls to you. He says, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. In other words, what Psalm is basically saying is that, God, when people hear rumors about you, let's say they live in a far-off, distant country, say Persia or South Africa or some other place that's very far away, and they hear rumors about this nation, Israel, that has been bought and purchased and honored and loved by God, this one God, not plurality of gods, but by one God, the God of heaven, the God who created all things. And when people hear rumors about this nation that has this relationship with this amazingly powerful and loving and kind God, when they hear those rumors and they have a desire in their heart to go visit Israel, to check it out, to come to the location that the living God has chosen to show himself where heaven and earth collide with each other, where heaven and earth come together and overlap, when they come from all over the world to this place, that they pray to you and that, God, you would welcome them in. You would take care of them. You would love them. You would shower the same type of grace upon them that you've showered upon us. So let me put it this way. From the beginning, it was God's intention to dwell with man. From the beginning, it was God's desire to have fellowship, to have relationship with human beings. But we've sinned. Like Israel, rather than Israel using the temple as a means to glorify God, as a means to welcome people, the temple became basically something that excluded people, that pushed people away. Rather than using the temple as a means to welcome the foreigners, welcome the outcast. In other words, to put it this way, Jesus shows up on the temple, and the temple has at that point become completely obsolete, not only because Israel has misused the purpose of the temple, but the purpose for which the temple was all about finally arrived. Let me give you an example. How many of you guys have dogs? How many of you actually pointed at a ball or pointed at an object, and rather than the dog looking at the object, looked at your hand? It's frustrating. You're like, look at the object. I'm pointing to the ball, pointing to the food, and you're looking at my hand. Israel, for the most part, rather than looking to where the object, in this case the temple, was pointing to God, they were looking at the temple. 
the temple became an idol to them. The religious system of Jesus' day, they loved the temple. They were willing to, to die to protect the temple or to murder anyone who would threaten the temple. Let me just simply say this. This is one of the best ways to identify idols in your life. Some of you might have not any clue what I'm talking about, but the reality is the Bible says that we were created by God to overflow, to worship, to honor things, to honor God. That's what we were created for. But if we don't worship and honor God, if we don't use our lives for the purposes for which they were created and designed by God, then we will use our lives and we, we will use our talents and our treasures and all the things that we have for things and for ways that don't bring honor to God. And as a result, those things become slaves, or we become slaves to those things. They enslave us. Those, by definition, the Bible describes, are idols. They're idols. One of the best ways to identify idols in your life is to ask yourself those things that you pour out energy over, those things that you give money towards, those things that you are all too eager to give your time, treasure, and talents away to, what would happen if that thing were to be threatened? That person were to be taken away? That object were to somehow get a scratch in it? What would happen if it was gone? What would happen if it was threatened or taken away? How would you respond? One of the best ways to identify idols in our lives is we begin to realize those things that oftentimes that we pour out our energy to, our life for, we are willingly just giving money away to those things. If it ever gets threatened, we freak out. That's what happened to the first century religious system. Because Jesus was talking about the temple, he shows up and he basically says, the purpose for which the temple has stood has been fulfilled. The temple stood as a means of bringing about relationship with man and God. Jesus says, I'm that means. The temple has stood as the means for having sins forgiven. Jesus comes and says, I'm the means for which sins will be forgiven. The temple stood as a means by which in having relationship with God, you find the peace of God. Jesus says, I am now the one who brings the peace of God. The religious system says, we don't like you, Jesus. We will kill you because you've threatened to take our idol away. And so what Jesus says as he comes on the Temple Mount, as he begins to judge the very temple system itself. He takes out a whip. He starts whipping people. In Jesus' own words, he says, what was to be a house of prayer for the nations has in turn become a den of thieves. This is Jesus' way, I believe, in sort of tapping into the prayer of Solomon, saying this temple was intended to be a place of evangelism. It was intended to be a place to be like a light or a city set up on a hill that would demonstrate the greatness and the beauty of our God. And rather than being used as a place to demonstrate the greatness and the beauty of our God, you guys have mismanaged it. You've used it as a means to demonstrate exclusivism. And rather than being a place of evangelism, heralding, shouting out, proclaiming, demonstrating God's greatness, you've used it as a place of commercialism and idolatry. So let me put it this way. It's easy oftentimes for people to be like, ah, the big issue, why Jesus was so angry and so frustrated was because of the commercialism. I believe there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus was definitely frustrated about that. But I think really at the end of the day, Jesus recognizes that the real root of the issue is not the commercialism. It was the idolatry. That's the problem, to be quite frank, with all of our hearts. Let me try to put it to you this way. Every single one of us in this room were created by God for a purpose. Every one of us in this room have been given gifts unique to each one of us by God. 
Some of you have really smart minds. You're really bright. You're very analytical. You can think through things. You can look at facts and break them down, put them back together again. Some of you have incredible music minds. You can hear uh, notes and bring them together. You're very good at putting lyrics together and writing things, writing poems, writing poetry, writing stories. Some of you are very good with art. You can take colors and put them together, and you are gifted in those areas. Some of you are not gifted maybe in those areas, but you got good looks, and you have the ability to do things. Some of you are like technically gifted, and you can you know, go onto computers and hack stuff and do weird geeky stuff. And the reality is, is that all of us have gifts that we've been given by God. But here's the problem. We take those gifts, and rather than using those gifts as being means to bring glory to God, like a temple, to demonstrate the greatness and the beauty of God, we use those things to terminate upon ourselves. We use those things as basically our means to build our kingdom, to establish our name, to make ourselves look great. But the real issue is this. Is it possible that life this life was not intended to be about you, but about somebody greater than you, about Jesus. That real life, true life, is not found in trying to make your story the story, but about bringing your story into his story, who is the truly great story. See, that's part of our problem. That's part of the brokenness of our heart. We've somehow taken the story and we've made it about ourselves. And as a result of that, we've terminated everything that we've been given upon ourselves. Our lives have become about ourselves. Our comfort is about whether or not I'm comfortable. Our beauty is about whether or not I'm enjoying beauty in other people. And I will stop at nothing to get and make sure that I have beauty in front of me because that's what it's about me. About me being satisfied. About me being taken care of. About my kingdom being done. And it's precisely that mentality that has actually not brought about life, but has brought about rottenness in every one of our lives. This is exactly what happened with Israel. The temple was a gift from God as a means to be a beacon to the nations. And Israel mismanaged it, squandered it, terminated it upon itself, and it became inward-focused rather than outward-focused. It became about commercialism rather than evangelism. And Jesus says, because of that, it stands under judgment. So Jesus comes in, and he starts whipping. He starts overturning the tables. He starts becoming what we would describe as angry, and he's angry. And the reality is, sometimes people think of this emotion of Jesus as being angry, and it's troubling for some people, because they think, wasn't Jesus like always happy? And I think Jesus was definitely happy. I think he had a range of emotions, sorrow, we're told. But the reality is, Jesus was angry and yet without sin. It's okay to be angry about sin. Sometimes we have this mentality that the whole point of being a Christian is to just go from being a not very nice person to being a really nice person. Sometimes there are things that you need to be angry over. Some of you aren't angry about sin. Some of you put up with sin. Some of you deal with it. Some of you just deal with it in your own self. And what you really need is to ask God to help you to have His heart for that sin, to be angry for that sin. Sometimes you might be even be in relationships and maybe someone in that relationship, maybe a husband and wife relationship and the husband is sinning against you. You're not helping him by just simply enabling him. What you need to do is get angry, but in a righteous way. 
to stop that sin. If you love a husband or love a spouse, your desire should be to see them be holy like Jesus is holy. And that means that we've got to confess sin and break away from sin and have sin dealt with. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying because Israel has broken ranks with God, because Israel has mismanaged the gifts that it's been given, now, therefore, it stands under the judgment. But more, let me try to define judgment for you in another light. The displeasure of God. Really, at the end of the day, that's the emotion that describes the emotion underneath judgment. It's displeasure. That's why when I walk out and I look at my garden and I'm tempted to just tear it apart, at the, 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 the root emotion beneath that knee-jerk reaction is probably I'm not acting out of like righteous anger. It's probably just pure anger. But it's displeasure. I'm dissatisfied. I'm not happy with what has come of my garden. In the same way, God looks at his people Israel and consequently the whole world and says, I've given Israel as well as the whole world everything. I've given them life. I've given them breath. I've held their molecules together since they were very young and formed in their mother's womb. And rather than worshiping me, rather than thanking me, rather than giving me honor and praise and giving me their time, their treasure, their talents, they've given me complaints. They've fought against me. They've resisted me. Rather than using the gifts that I've given them to terminate upon praise and worshiping me, they've used them to terminate upon themselves to build up their greatness, to build up their beauty, in which, at the end of the day, is empty, and it's incurred the displeasure of God. So Jesus enters in the temple, and he begins to turn everything around, bring his judgment. And I think the ultimate question that we need to really ask is, what do these actions and sayings have to do really with Jesus' kingdom? Because I think it's important to understand everything that Jesus does is always about putting on display what he's come to accomplish, meaning his kingdom. Jesus came into Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. Probably the best way to understand Jesus is to look at him in two different ways. First, you need to look at Jesus' life, right? Now, I realize, in a lot of ways, there's a tendency in Christian circles to look at Jesus from birth and immediately jump to his death. Don't do that. You can't do that. The Gospels refuse to allow you to do that. That's why we're going through the Gospels. The Gospels are four complete books about Jesus' life. That Jesus' life had purpose. There was a reason why Jesus did the things he did. So let me try to put it to you this way. Jesus, his life is very significant. Jesus lived a life for Israel, and then ultimately for we, the life that Israel should have lived. Let me give you an example. Every time you look at Jesus, what you're watching in Jesus' life is everything that Jesus had intended and desired for Israel. So let me try to put it for you in this context. Every miracle Jesus committed, every orphan he drew to himself every person he fed every display of compassion every gathering together a lame person or a paralyzed person or healing of a blind person or feeding 4,000 or feeding 5,000 any of these things all of these things are one case study after another of Jesus saying look at me because everything that I do is everything I expected and desire for Israel to do. Jesus' whole point was from the very beginning, he wanted Israel to be a light to the nations. He wanted Israel to help the marginalized. He wanted Israel to reach out to the homeless, the worthless, the marginalized, the hurting, the broken, 
the people that are cast off in culture and society. He wanted Israel to somehow be kind of a welfare state that loved and shined grace and favor and care and gave resources and money and time and energy to people that didn't have it. And in doing so, the nations would hear of Israel's God and want to come to where Israel's God was in the temple to worship God. Remember, it was all about evangelism. Don't, don't think of evangelism hanging out on a street corner and yelling at people. That may be a segment, a small segment of evangelism. The main idea of what I'm trying to convey here is heralding, communicating, speaking forth the greatness of God. Israel was supposed to do that, and Israel didn't do that. And everything Jesus' life did was everything that Israel had failed to do. So it's safe to say you can look at Jesus and say everything he did in life was everything that Israel should have done but hadn't done. The second thing that we can take a look at Jesus is also to realize uh, that Jesus' death is definitely for not only Israel but also for the rest of the world. Before I jump to that, I want to finish one other thought because when we look at the temple, the temple was to symbolize Israel. But even more than that, it was to symbolize God's acceptance of all worldwide. It was to be a symbol of God's welcome to the whole world. That was the purpose of the temple, was to be a place that all people throughout the entire world can come and meet with this great God. But instead of being used as a place of demonstrating God's greatness, it basically became symbolized as a place of exclusion. It was the place where everybody was shut out from. Let me put it this way. We have a tendency, because we can, like I said earlier, we can easily look at Israel and be like, yeah, Israel messed up, they failed. But the reality is all of us as human beings, and even as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, have the tendency to falling in the same category as well. I'll tell you how we can do it as a church ourselves. At our church, uh, we have a very, very large group of people between ages 18 to 35. That's the number one demographic. We have some people, larger, growing community of people of age 40 and above. I'm part of that 40 and above group now. The reality is that there is a tendency, and I hear it, and I oftentimes see it and witness it, but the reality is, is this mentality that can oftentimes come in the hearts and the minds of younger people that maybe aren't married, and they look at older people that are married, have kids, and they tend to look at them and think, ah, they're old, they've got kids, I'm not interested in hanging out, being a part of, welcoming them, spending time with them, because they have nothing in common whatsoever with me, so there's a tendency to pull away, to walk away. The flip side is also true where you have people that are a little bit older who can look at their lives and say, you know, we're at a certain stage in life. We've got, you know, a job. We've got careers. We've got family. We've got other things we've got to take care of. We've got a mortgage. Why would we want to spend time with a young student who's, you know, 21 years old or 18 years old because they don't really have anything to offer me? And there's this tendency to sort of exclude. If that is a mentality that is even in seed form in your heart, you're in danger of doing exactly what Israel did. You're in danger of somehow walking away from the gospel and the purpose and the intent of the gospel, which is to bring together, to include, to bring people into a place of relationship with God through Jesus, through what he's accomplished on the cross. Not to exclude, not to push away, not to shun. The reality is is that Jesus is saying is that when people become inward focused and lose sight of the purpose for which God created them, then a form of judgment comes. And so Mark wants us to ask this question, why did all these things happen? Why did they take place? And the second thing, like I said, I'm done with this, is that we see Jesus' death on the cross, is that Jesus dies a death 
for Israel and for the rest of the world that we deserve to die. As I said, when we do something or live a life that God gave to us to be lived for his glory, and rather than being used for his glory, we use it for our own glory, we fall into displeasure, disfavor with God, and deserve right judgment upon ourselves. But by the time we get to the end of the book of Mark, what we notice, something absolutely amazing in the life of Jesus. That not only does Jesus live the life for Israel that Israel should have lived but failed, and we should have lived but have failed, because everything that Jesus does is always for the glory of God, always for the benefit of other people. But we also see that Jesus incurs, takes upon himself the judgment that Israel and you and I deserve for failing to live the life that we should have lived. And on the cross, what we see is Jesus, like the tree being cursed, like the tree being withered. And on the cross, we see Jesus, like the temple, being scourged, being broken for us. To the degree that we see that Jesus was cursed for us, was withered for our sin, for our transgression, and was scourged and bruised and broken for our sin. To the degree that you see that, he did that for you. Not because he had to, but because love drove him to do that because he loves you. You begin to realize that this king is a king that can be trusted with your heart. This king is a king that you can actually give to him your sin and know that he's not going to mock you. This king is a king that you know that you can give him everything and know that he won't shun you, he won't shove you away, he won't push you out, he will welcome you. He will do exactly what the temple was intended to do because Jesus is the presence and the glory of God in this world that welcomes us. To the degree that you see that and you let that change and challenge your perception of God, you will change. All of those things that you have used your life as means to live for, to get affection, to get affirmation, to get approval, all of those things that you have used, your gifts, your talents, your money, your energy, as means of somehow developing an identity, all of those things at some point to you amount to nothing more like what Paul says as dung, garbage, for the excellency of knowing God. To the degree that you see that Jesus bore your shame because he loves you. That will free you. That will free you from being a slave to money. Rather than using money as a means to make your name great, now you are free and you can use money to make his name great. You can use money to bring a blessing to other people that are hurting. Rather than using fame as a means to somehow secure your greatness of your name, you can use fame as a platform to glorify his greatness, and you're free. But that only comes by seeing the king who left his glory, laid it down so that you and I who have no glory can be clothed in glory. That was the price that Jesus paid to rescue us. We're going to finish we're going to sing. We're going to finish with the song. We're going to respond. We'll partake of communion. We have communion in the back. There's little back three stations right there. As we finish in this song, I want to invite you to worship this king.
I want to invite you to cast your sin upon this king, to give your heart to this king. He's a king that will not mock you. He will not shame you. He will not cause you to feel defiled. He's a king that will actually take your defilement. He's a king that will take your shame. And he's done that because he's a king that loves you. He's a king that will restore you and heal you. I want to encourage you to come to him, confess your sin to him, partake of communion if you're one of his followers, to remember what he did. And as we sing, uh, myself and any other other community group leaders, other pastors in our church will be kind of along this little wall right here over by the cross on. If you would like prayer for anything that's going on in your life, there's sin, there's things, there's issues, maybe you're not a Christian, you want to become a Christian here today, we're happy to pray with you. So I'm going to pray, and these guys will lead some worship. We'll finish up. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. God, even right now, we invite you to come flood our hearts with a sense of your beauty, with a sense of your greatness and with a sense of the sacrifice and your love which you've paid for us. God, that you would stir up affections in our hearts for you. And God, that you would cause us to pull away from the love affair that we've had with ourselves and these false gods that we've held on to and these things that we've devoted ourselves to vigorously all of which have never led to more life, but have actually taken life away from us and have turned us into their slave. So Jesus, we thank you that you are a deliverer, that you set us free, and help us to sing worship to you even right now because you have set us free.